following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. That was Bruce Coburn with Call It Democracy, and that's what we're going to be talking about next with Dr Peter Tate from the Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy and also Active Democracy Australia. And those of you who are regular listeners will recall that we've had Peter on the show before, uh, particularly leading up to the ACT Legislative Assembly elections in 2020. And Peter had some great tips for us, and then we had a bit of a debrief at the end of the uh, elections to see how well we'd done, and we're hoping to do something similar with the federal election. So welcome back to the show, Peter. It's lovely to have you in studio with us again. Uh, thank you, Zena and Scotty and g'day listeners. Yes. So again, I know a lot of people probably know this information, but there might be some that are new to this. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction to the Canberra Alliance for Participatory Democracy and the other group you're involved with, Active Democracy Australia, just to get us started? Okay. So Canberra Alliance for Participatory Democracy has been around for six years. And a bit years now, mm-hmm. we came out of a series of kitchen table conversations that mm-hmm. Sea Change ran in mm-hmm. 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and the common issue to all those conversations were that democracy isn't working for the people. And so we need to do something about it. So being somewhat humble, we decided we'd just focus on the ACT, therefore Canberra Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have spent a few years um, refining our our message, but essentially our theory of change is that if we have the right parliamentarians um, sitting in our legislative assembly or in federal parliament, then we're going to get good government, and if we get good government, then all the worries of mankind will evaporate. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not quite, but but essentially we'll we'll have some good realistic action on on the pressing problems that are confronting us at the moment. Where Active Democracy Australia comes in is that um, Rob Salter from Melbourne, who was attracted to the Canberra Alliance and and got a bit involved and gave us a presentation. And his theory of change is that if we can get lots of conversations happening at the electorate level and get groups of people in the electorate who are willing to, to actually form a relationship with their MPs to make sure that their MPs are working for them and making some direct personal accountability of the MP back to the electorate group, again, we're going to get MPs in Parliament who are working for our good, for the public good and for the betterment of Mm. Australia, not for the big donors. Mm. That's probably the primary issue at this election, I would say, is where a lot of people's concerns are. They are. I think this election and lots of other people are echoing, well, I'm echoing lots of other people, let's be modest about this, that that this is both the the climate change election, this is is the election where Australia has got to get a government that's going to seriously address climate change and not deny that they have any responsibility for the future of Australia's youth. And it's the hand in glove with that is this has got to be the election where we get MPs into the federal parliament who are going to display integrity and are going to change the system mm. so that their the influence of, of large donors um, is removed from the system. And there's a whole array of things that we all know needs to be done. The Centre for, Center for Public Integrity um, has a list and um, so yeah, it's the climate change and the integrity in government election hand in hand, if we get integrity in government, we'll get some realistic action on climate change. What we saw, which I thought was um, quite exciting for me to witness, was in the ACT Legislative Assembly elections in 2020, we had just come through the worst bushfires in our country's history. 
And you saw how many green seats got in in that election. Yep. Like we, we made a huge change and we had uh, electorates that were traditionally Liberal and Labor voters that had never had a green candidate um, be successful in that electorate and they took it by storm. Yeah. Um, we just had Andrew in here, of course, yeah. who's the first Greens um, MLA in the electorate of Yarrabee. Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of progressive change as far as people maybe altering their staunch views on voting because a lot of people, you know, they vote traditionally, they vote habitually, and now they're questioning that. And this is what we're hearing, you know, when we ask our listeners uh, for feedback, yeah. we're hearing the same thing. People say, look, we're not sure how to vote. We're not sure how to vote to make the difference that we want. Well, and I think... This sort of the last three years has really got people thinking now and and I think it's really good that people are thinking about how they're going to put their vote because that's the one power we have as voters is who we vote for and where we put them in our preference list. Yeah, that's huge. And now we've got all this tragedy up north with the floods, you know, everywhere north of Sydney is basically half of it's underwater. Uh, and this is going to be years of recovery. And some of these areas were also impacted by the bushfires. So we're going to have potentially communities that may not be able to rebuild. It may be too hard for them financially, logistically to rebuild and people aren't going to be able to play the long game and they're going to have to move away. Mm. That's right. And for 30 years now, we have had governments who have been refusing to actually come to the party, governments of both colours who have been refusing to come to the party and have a serious conversation with the Australian people about what needs to be done. And this is the consequence of that 30 years of delay. Yeah, I've just been down the coast having some pretty pretty big conversations with people and, and yeah, it's there are still people living in caravans and stuff. And imagine being in a caravan during this sort of weather and still not knowing how to rebuild your house and... Or not stuff. having the resources to rebuild well, your right. house. Yeah. 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 Well, it's $30,000 insurance to insure something up in the Northern Rivers for flood. Yep. So a majority of lower income earners had no insurance. They had yep. nothing. Yeah. Yep. And that's the same down here now. Yeah. 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 And we just had the um, community mobilised response to the floods on last week with um, Aussie Helping Hands. Mm -hmm. so it's all community groups that have mobilised in response to the floods because the government wasn't stepping in, because the big charities weren't stepping in. I think they had, they said the Salvation Army showed up for two days with a bit of food and then they left. And that was it. That's all they saw. And I know we've just had a big campaign with the Red Cross collecting flood money and they just released the figures of the bushfire money that had been collected by big charities. And it was only about one-fifth that actually got to the people. So, you know, in, in real terms that they're actually able to use. So the okay yeah, and that was between the four big charities. So there was a real issue of um, when you also want to support, you know, where where do you send your support? So people in Canberra feeling that they're in a better position financially yep. want to send some money. Do you do it through one of the big charity platforms, or do you give it direct to a community group and try and make change more immediate for those people? You know, get them to the point where they can maybe have some funds to get a shipping container in, to get a mm. caravan, to get some furniture, to get to the point where they can actually live. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, in terms of community democracy, yeah. what the, the conversation that's playing out now about the role of community and the mm. role of government is quite interesting mm. because what we know happens and what we saw happen um, is that local people organise mm. locally get groups of friends and, and, and acquaintances together and do stuff. So that like that woman who's just started the spreadsheet for rescues, um, you know, she was out of her own home. She was sitting in a, in a hotel room or a caravan with a laptop and thought this will be useful. So people actually have incredible capacity to self-organise. You've then got the, the government sector 
and, and, and their response. And what tends to happen is when government arrive, people go, oh, thank God, you know, yeah, the cavalry the here, over. hand the responsibility yeah. over. Mm-hmm. And, and government has, you know, strengths and weaknesses. It has lots of resources and it can coordinate things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's above, if you like, the mm-hmm. carry. And then you've got the big charities and the big charity role. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, one of the problems and again, this is this is a small thing that's been running through this, is that government has been outsourcing a lot of its work to charities and the charities, there are several of them, and they do their best to coordinate and they do their best to move funds through, but they've got to also be accountable um, to both their donors and to the public that they're trying to help. And so that puts bureaucracy in there. And, and unfortunately, governments have been um, making it more difficult for charities I mean, mm-hmm. you know, governments claim that it's making them more accountable, mm-hmm. but it also puts another level of bureaucracy in there in the accounting. Mm-hmm. And bureaucracy is expensive. And bureaucracy costs mm-hmm. money. The ideal situation from some of the work I did with mm-hmm. a student a couple of years ago was around how do governments, in preparation for disasters, mm-hmm. prepare communities to be able to be more resilient and self-sufficient mm-hmm. and have resources on hand so when something happens, they can move quickly mm-hmm. at a local level, locally coordinated, and then the government comes in later not to take over, but to actually work out, okay, where are the gaps in here that we can actually pour some extra resources in? So, okay, you might need manpower to clean out houses. The army will be here tomorrow. Um, and it's to do with the preparation, the planning. I mean, the Weather Bureau was saying some days before this happened that there was going to be a lot of rain. Did the army get put on alert? Did they start getting people lined up thinking, well, there might be floods here, we might be needed? Um, anyway, so, but, but the, the, the point here is that local groups and local communities are good at doing democracy when they're facilitated to do it. Well, that's it. Like in, in Christchurch, they went after the big earthquake there. The, one of the things that really helped them out was that they already had um, oh, what is it? A time bank, I think. Uh, established. Oh, it's a, a, a economic foundation for. Stuff. Um, well, no, this was a, a a strong community that was networking. So the time bank is a, a an organisation that um, you can volunteer to do stuff for people, and you can also call in work from other people, whatever it might be. And you're paid in hours and you pay with hours. So there's no money exchanged. But this was quite a successful one and, and it was all over the place. I think it might have been a town near Christchurch. Anyway, uh, because of that network there, there was a network. Everybody knew who did what and what their capabilities were and all of this stuff. So that mobilisation of the community because they were prepared and because that network of knowing so what was available. So they had an infrastructure, available. right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. just an, an, a network infrastructure, yeah. Mm. Uh, that made all the difference. A so. pre-existing planned infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, that's mm-hmm. right, yeah. So it really is important and, and makes a massive difference, mm. yeah. Which I guess we get back to the situation is these are really obvious solutions to, you know, very in-our-face problems. So the reason is why they're not being implemented and this gets back to the issue of what we want to talk about. Yeah, right? yeah. What, what, what has our government yeah. been doing or yeah. our last three or four or five governments been doing yeah. knowing that this is coming down the pipeline? Yeah. So they've essentially been under the control of, of large corporate vested interests. Yeah. Um, 
And the only way to change that is is to both change the legislation around things like political donations, caps on donations, um, accounting for donations in real time, um, looking at who's who's visiting who and about what, so open diaries in real time, a raft of these things like that. And the only way we're going to get that legislation through Parliament, because we've seen both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party siding um, with with blocking or overturning some of those changes, is by getting, at this election, a good smattering of independents in there of whatever colour and flavour um, who are prepared to work together for the public's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they have called this... I mean, it was... Um was it Kath McGowan was saying this is the... Oh, no, it was, sorry, pardon me, it was Starley Stegall who was saying this is the election of the independents. Yes. This is where we yeah. get to make the change. That's right. There's, there's a lot of, of um, hopeful... There's 21 hopeful um, candidates. Well, actually, there's more than 21 hopeful mm-hmm. candidates. There's 21 electorates that have got independents running. Some have more than one independent mm-hmm. running. I mean, one could question the tactics there mm-hmm. by splitting that vote, but, you know, as long as voters are sensible with where they put their preferences... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we don't quite have that luxury in the House of Reps um, in the ACT, but um, we're, we're getting a situation building for the Senate candidates um, where, again, people need to seriously think about where they put their votes in order to get someone who is going to put um, work in Parliament for the ACT's interests. So, you know, people often say to us, look, we really worry that if we vote for who we want and they don't have a good chance of getting in, our vote's just going to go to who we don't want. So is it possible you could just give a brief explanation of the voting process to help people clarify it on how to strategically vote? Yeah, well, um, there are textbooks written on this. (laughs) But essentially, the bottom line is that the whole point is to vote for who you want and to put them preference one. And then you basically go down the list of people and and in order preference the people who you would prefer to get in if the first person does get in and to get in third if the and, and so down the line and then you get to the people who who you you would prefer not to get in and then at the bottom you put the people you'd least want to get in. Mm. Now, if everybody does that and, and I mean the problem with tactical voting they say is that it works in certain electorates in certain elections, but by and large, it's better just to go with what you want up front, number all the squares. Um, And so even if your preferred candidate doesn't get in, their votes will flow to your second preferred candidate. And if they don't get in, that will flow to your third preferred candidate. And so somewhere in that list, you're going to get someone you can live with. I mean, democracy, like sociocracy, it's not about what's the best, it's about what can you live with. And so often with MPs, it's what we can live with. Um, and so that's what I'm encouraging voters to do. I mean, the Canberra Alliance, this election is, in, is uh, encouraging voters to think about where they put those votes in, in the ACT, both in the Senate and, and in the House of Reps. And each electorate in the House of Reps, you know, there'll be a, a Liberal and a Labor and a Greens and possibly a Canberra Progressives mm-hmm. and possibly a couple of others. Um, and so out of those candidates, you know, who would you prefer to get in? And it's not just the party. Clearly people have party preferences. And it's not just party policy because in an electorate, in an election where we haven't got anybody 
um, actually promoting a whole lot of policies except some independents who are talking about things like integrity and action to address climate change, then it act, and, and thinking about what needs to be done in the next parliament with getting good, strong in, integrity and government measures in place, it really is you need to be thinking about which of those candidates is likely to deliver and you need to interview the candidates. One of the lines we're putting at this election is is go and interview your candidates. And we've got on our website, Canberra Alliance, um, if you Google Canberra Alliance Participatory Democracy, we come up, um, we have an election page. Top menu bar, elections, go to elections, you'll find that there is a... Um, a set of tabs. You can click on the 2020 election tab. Um, tagline for this election, take your vote seriously. Um, and you go to our election page and then there is a list of things, including a set of questions we are inviting you to think about um, asking the candidates mm -hmm. and when you interview them to see who your job. And they are questions mm -hmm. like... Um, you know, how are you going to help us, your constituents, participate in decisions about issues affecting our electorate? And how are you going to let us know what's going on in Parliament, what you're doing? And then some really strict um, accountability reforms like, you know, what's their position on real-time disclosure of donations over what cap do they favour? Mm -hmm. How are they going to implement political caps? How are they going to implement spending caps on election spending, how are they going to enforce, um, strengthen enforcement and compliance through the Electoral Commission and a National Integrity Commission, and how are they, what's their position, how are they going to vote on legislation requiring truth in political advertising? Mm -hmm. You know, half a dozen really key questions that will help inform then how um, they vote. Well, it'll help you know if they've really thought about those things too, right? Exactly. And, and I think the how-to question, how are you going to, is, is going to demonstrate whether they've thought it about. Because if you ask them, do you favour this, they'll go, yeah. But when you say, how are you going to do this or how are you going to vote on this, then you're actually, that's the answer you want. Because if they say, well, I don't agree with, you know, collapse on political advertising, I think, you know, we shouldn't have caps on political advertising because of whatever reason they come up with, then you know the answer to the question. If they say, yep, I'm strongly over that, and if, um, and if legislation comes before the parliament, I will vote for it, then again, they have made a personal commitment to you, the voter, about what they're going to do. You can write that down. You can hold them accountable to that. If they, you know, when the vote comes up, you can go to political gadgets or they vote for you and you will know. Yeah. How they vote. That's right. I mean, that works well for independents, but for people who are members of a party, particularly the Labor Party, they don't have a choice to make an independent vote once they're in the parliament. They have to toe the party line, otherwise they'll get in big trouble. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing, partially through this independent movement, is that people in the electorate's mm -hmm. constituents don't like that party mm -hmm. discipline. Mm -hmm. They, I, I mean, I've read that Australia has the strictest party discipline in the world. In the UK mm -hmm. Parliament, people cross the floor regularly, you know, to vote against their party mm -hmm. on different issues. And I think what this might be going to do is to put pressure on the large political parties to free up how their members relate to their constituency, you know, 
And and for the member, it is awkward. They are a member of a party. There is party rules and party discipline. Mm-hmm. In order to get pre-selected and continue to be pre-selected, mm-hmm. they are going to have to play that game. Mm-hmm. But at the same token, they work for us. They are in Parliament to look after our interests mm-hmm. and we want them to vote in mm-hmm. our interest. And where that conflicts mm-hmm. with the party discipline, then they have to make what might be described as a courageous choice. <laughs> Which I actually read, and I, pardon me, I've forgotten the um, MP's name, the senator's name, but uh, a female senator resigned from the Liberal Party last night because of the disgust over how yep. they've handled the floods, and you probably saw that as well. Yeah, um, I can't remember her name yes. either, but yes, a New South Wales Legislative Council. Yeah, yes. Equi- yeah, Senate mm-hmm. equivalent. Yes. So you've got someone, again, making that courageous yep. decision. And then we've seen that actually turn into something quite successful when those people decide to run as independents. Yes. And they actually have a far more successful political yeah. career as an independent. That's right. Because they're more in aligned with their true values too. Exactly. Yeah. They have manifested some values, people, because mm-hmm. people often, you know, again, we mm-hmm. get people to think about what are the values of the MP mm-hmm. you're voting mm-hmm. for? You know, are they someone who shapeshifts on every issue depending who they're talking to? Or do they come out and make some bold statements mm-hmm. which they... Mm-hmm to the best of their ability, align with. And I think for most part, and you know, most, I'd say, healthy functioning people that aren't on the spectrum of antisocial personality disorder, um, mostly go into politics with good intentions. Yeah. And then depending on how they navigate that political labyrinth, yep. um, they either start to get a little bit flexible with their good intentions or they find that they just can't work in that environment. Yeah. And this is the challenge, I guess, is electing good leaders that um, are good people as well. And a lot of the questions we want to ask is how do you know if the person you're voting for is a good person? What what sort of strategies can you use to determine if if that person has integrity? Because they're all, you know, all the very successful politicians are great speakers and they're charismatic and they can can win a crowd, but... Are they going to do exactly yeah. what you ask them to? Are they going to be accountable? So, so when you're looking at the array of candidates mm-hmm. who are putting stuff in your letterbox, mm-hmm. you can look at there are incumbents and there are hopefuls. Mm-hmm. The incumbent, you can look at their voting mm-hmm. record. So, you know, organisations like websites like Political Gadgets have got a raft of information about candidates, how they vote, what they spend their money on, how much political advertising they do. They have a Barnaby Joyce meter, so you can see how aligned their voting is with Barnaby Joyce. You know, you can be. I'm sorry, that's brilliant. 92 percent of laughter here. Barnaby Joyce, or you can be, you know, twenty three percent. Is it like shaped like Joyce. his hat? So that it gets no, bigger. no, it's just a. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just like a meter. Hat. Growing and shrinking would be good. Um, okay, I hope Evan's listening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, and so, you know, incumbents, mm-hmm. there is, there is mm-hmm. you know, you can go to Hansard, you can look mm-hmm. at, at lots of places. In terms of mm-hmm. people who are coming in, then it's, well, mm-hmm. you know, what are they telling you about what they've done in their past life? What's mm-hmm. the skills and the experience? You know, when you read that bump, does it sound like bump or does it sound like they're actually telling you what it's like? Mm-hmm. And again, when you go and interview them, mm-hmm. you can ask them, mm-hmm. you know, what is your position on mm-hmm. this? How how are you going mm-hmm. to, and and you know how are you going to vote mm-hmm. on a legislation for this? And mm-hmm. and in those answers, you'll begin to get a feeling about whether they're just mm-hmm. talking at you, mm-hmm. or or whether they've thought it through and they've actually got a position that you can hold them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not allowed to use the word because we're on air, but it would call it my bull bull bleep meter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so. 
In Europe, there's often uh, coalition governments with a lot of minor parties together because, mm. you know, there's yep. no big parties there. So um, they get together regularly and form government and negotiate and all of that sort yep. of stuff. And that's what we've got in, in Canberra at the mm. moment with the, yep. the Labor Greens. Um, but they'll often have four or five different parties in there. Um, what about just a whole lot of independents working together to hold government. Have you, is, do you know if there's a place in the world where that's happened before? Um, other than the Gillard Parliament and our current parliament. No, not a hung parliament, but just no, independents. No, there is no such thing as a hung parliament. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Explain. So a, a major party can't form government. They have to seek um, support... Um, for supply and, and confidence from other members of parliament who may be members of minor parties or who may be independents. Therefore, you end up with a government comprising one or several parties, major and minor parties, and some independents. And they rule in that situation. And so we have a parliament... We have a government, it is functioning. And so it means that there is a much broader array of interests being represented in the government than would be other if it was just one major party who had a, you know, 50 plus one major, percent majority. Mm-hmm. So, you know. So I was thinking more along the situation of, say, if this independence movement really gains uh, massive momentum and we get in more independence than party people. Could... Well, we'll, we'll... Yeah, 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 <laughs> go, go on with your question. Yeah, <laughs> so is there a place anywhere where that's happened and it's a whole lot of independence uh, forming the government, I guess outside of northern Syria probably? So there's no majority major party? There's no party in yeah. control, it's just a bunch of... Uh, yeah, I mean, other than the confederal system in northern in, in Kurdish homelands, I haven't heard of a system like mm. that. I mean, clearly it works in Kurdistan and, and surrounding areas. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in, in the history of Western liberal democracy, it, it's always been based around parties, you know, big parties and little parties, and the occasional independent who, if they play their cards right, can swing a lot of influence. Mm. What... Most of the current crop of of independents and independent hopefuls do is they demonstrate that they will work issue by issue based on what their constituency in their electorate wants. And so um, that means there's got to be a mechanism that they can find out what their constituents in their electorate want and there's got to be a mechanism then to work for other people. And so it is the usual, you know, negotiation around, you know, how do I translate what my constituents want into an outcome in a vote in, in, in the parliament. So um, it's all done by negotiation. So little parties negotiate with big parties in each other, independents negotiate with each other and big parties. And I think one of the messages most of these independents are saying is, you know, when they're asked which party are you going to to align with it's like my job is not to align with a party my job is to represent my constituents Mm. yeah yeah which is a lovely ideal yes Yes. and that was gets to the next question was are there better ways to govern ourselves than the current choices are offering us well of course there are (laughs) but 
I mean, where, where I think the Canberra Alliance and Active Democracy Australia come from this is we have got an electoral representative d- democratic system, democratic in um, inverted commas, because really lots of political scientists think we're an electoral oligarchy where we get to vote between the oligarchs for who's going to rule us. Given that, given our parliamentary system, however, it's better to work with what we've got and reform that as much as we can as a means to transition to something else rather than start going out on limbs to try and get, you know, a sociocratic confederalist Australian (laughs) situation happening. When nobody knows what that means. When nobody even knows what that means. Yes, and I would encourage people to look up uh, the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria and check it out for a... Uh, an example that worked for seven years of very, very, very grassroots democracy. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I think, t- so, so that's, there's that bit, but then um, maybe to launch into a bit more about what Active Democracy Australia is, is trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, uh, th- there's two situations. It, it's, it comes back to this question about how do MPs and the constituents work together in an electorate to um, hold the MP to account and to get the MP working, you know, giving the MP some clear instructions about what you want them to be doing for you. So it, it, it's based on the INDI model, um, as most of the community independence project independence are. But it says, OK, if you, if you get an independent up, then you'll probably put some homework and some groundwork into getting a community organisation going to get that community independent elected and therefore there's an organisation who they can relate back to. But in a situation where your community independent fails or there isn't a community independent standing or there is a different independent standing but there isn't that community organisation, how do you build a mechanism to get those um, that relationship happening in the electorate where you can be holding your member to account and um, getting them to work in your interests. Mm. And so what um, the, the simple answer is you build that organisation. And the, we use the same mechanism has been used all over the place already is you, you get a group of, you know, one or two or three of you in an electorate who wants to build an organisation you um, start having, you know, inviting friends and neighbours into kitchen table conversations. You start talking about the issues about how you want to do this and then you set up the group and then you approach your MP and then you get see if your MP's on side or not on side and if they're on side, you start working out a mechanism with them whereby you can regularly meet with them and talk about the issues and if they're not on side, then, okay, obviously they don't want to play, you think to the next election. Yeah, so what, what is the, the, like the heart of this system is the kitchen table conversation. Can you explain that a little bit? So the, the kitchen table conversation is basically where you get a group of about eight people sitting around a kitchen table or a picnic table or because I think in the last election we talked about picnic table conversations. <laughs> um, COVID version. <laughs> a COVID version in a living room at a barbecue, however you want to do it, in a cafe and you basically have a a standardised format of a set of questions that you work through over one or two meetings. You create a report um, and you deliver that report to yourselves and your community. The point of the 
conversation isn't to come necessarily to an outcome, but is to air the views of everybody who's present to look for where the commonalities are and to look at, at where that seems to be suggesting that action needs to lead. And then you, as your local group, democratically come up to decide, you know, what you want to do with this consensus and how you're going to recruit more people to the cause. I mean, most it's a period of several months and you have different conversations with different people and you invite different people to to have their own conversations and then if it seems that emerging out of this there is a will from the community to set up um, some organisation around um, working or getting the MP to work for you, then you can go ahead with it. What Active Democracy Australia does is provides a website where there are a heap of resources that can show you how to run kitchen table conversations, um, what to do with the report, how you can relate to MPs. We've also got a page there for every electorate in Australia and you can go along and you can see who your current member is um, and whether there's an active um, electorate group happening in your um, electorate, whether it's one of the community independent groups or a different electorate group. And it also um, gives you some information about the electorate from the Australian Electoral Commission um, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So you can get a little bit of a feel and get to know your electorate. Now, with the kitchen table conversations, I've always thought they're a brilliant idea. I thought I'd like to do that, but, oh, geez, I don't want to do that. That's <laughs> really intimidating and, and, and holding me back, but... Um, how, how can people get confidence in, in holding these things? Are there trainings available? Or? Yeah. So, um, I mean, there seems to be two groups of people, people who are just natural networkers who go to the website, download the stuff and think, yep, I'm going to do this, yeah. invite a few yeah. neighbours over and away they go. Yeah. That, that happens. Yeah. And then there are people who, yeah, it's like, mm, what are they going to think of me if I invite them to one of these things and are they going to come and how's it going to work? Yeah. So what we say is if there are two or three of you in an electorate who want to form one of these groups, go to the website and see if one exists already. And if one exists, there are contact details, you can get in touch with them and you can join in. If no group exists, then we're really happy if you can get about eight people together to walk you through doing a kitchen table conversation. Mm. And I've just been on a training, that was while I was down the coast, with a mob called The Art of Hosting. Yep, um, great mob. And, yeah, go do one of them because that'll give you a really good rounded <laughs> idea of how to do these things. Yes. Yeah. And for people, as you said, who might be a bit more reticent to set up something like this or to lead something like this, you know, sort of what are the, some of the areas they can get involved in which may not um, be as intimidating if you want to participate somehow? Well, um, I mean, I mean, it's a good question to which there is no real straight answer. I mean... So maybe what, what sort of important actions can they take so, that may not be a kitchen table Yeah, so, so a lot of these yeah. are contextual. So I think it, it's, it's the onion skin model. If you're on the outside and you're looking and you're not quite sure what's, what's going on, just have a dabble around on the website, see what's there, go to other people's websites, um, think about doing an art of hosting 
training to give you a set of skills that you can use, learn more um, until you sort of get this feeling that you know enough that you might be prepared to talk to other people about it. Get Kathy McGowan's book. Get Kathy McGowan's book. Which Kathy is goes called to Canberra. Kathy goes to Canberra. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, then, you know, if you're a little bit more confident, then just start talking to friends and neighbours. You know, do it sort of unofficially. Um, try it out with people who you know and trust uh, rather than complete strangers. And just, you know, and again, there are a set of sort of stock questions that, is, that are there that, that um, we've designed to lead the conversation in a particular direction because we're interested in the conversation going in the direction of how we get our MPs working better for us. Um, and then... Sometimes you just got to give it a go. Yeah, I was question, go on, questions are the hard bit, and they've been given to you. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was finding this particular um, thing that I observed a little bit odd. So I like to go to the farmers market on Saturday here, and often there's a political candidate out by the entrance there, yep. and a few volunteers and chatting to the people. And I was chatting to uh, one of the candidates out there, and. The volunteers initially approach you when you go up there and you say, oh, look, I was hoping to chat to the candidate. And then while you're chatting to the volunteers, while you're waiting to chat to the candidate, I discovered that a lot of the volunteers themselves hadn't chatted to the candidate. <laughs> that, <laughs> that they had actually, they were volunteering because they liked the idea of this particular candidate yep. or this particular party, but they had had no interaction with the candidate themselves. Oh, interesting. So, you know, I, I did find mm-hmm. that very, very strange. You know, So there's yeah. um, an, an approach there that, Maybe some of what you're suggesting is that people who are a little bit shyer, they want to take more of a backseat mm. role, but they want to be involved. Yep. There might be, you know, potentially other things that they can do, like, you know, get involved in a party and volunteer or get involved yes. with yes. Um, a candidate and volunteer to find out how the system works and get yep. a better understanding of it. Yep. And one of Cathy's mm-hmm. um, processes was to invite mm-hmm. people from her electorate to her office up here in Parliament House mm-hmm. and show them how the system worked. The other thing that's happening at the moment is the Our Democracy campaign, which is a campaign run by the Australian Democracy Network and the Human Rights, whatever they call themselves, <laughs> um, mental blank here. Anyway, um, it, it's, they're basically running a survey and there's, there's two versions of the survey uh, or two ways of doing the survey. You can go online to the ourdemocracy.org.au website and they will send you a bundle of flyers. You can walk around your neighbourhood and put them in letterboxes. Mm-hmm. That's a fairly low-key, not mm-hmm. particularly challenging way of doing it. And it's inviting people to, to fill in a and survey. And you hide from the neighbours that you know are going to take a pot shot at you. Yeah, that yeah that's box. right. Yeah. You go at 8 o'clock at night or something. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, and the survey is basically nine questions that, that asks around, you know, people's support for things like integrity commissions, um, caps on voting, election spending, truth in political advertising, those sorts of questions. And the idea of that is that the Our Democracy campaign are pulling all those data together by electorate throughout Australia and they are going to use that as part of the election campaign to say, well, this is what the people of Australia think. And so, again, it's giving... Um, information to candidates about what's important to the people of Australia, but it's also giving constituents and voters confidence that there are other people in the, the area that actually feel the same way about these issues that they do and have the, you know, the same opinion. Because one of the things we know from a lot of political work is that people always underestimate or overestimate their position in the scheme of things. So if it's a bit controversial, they tend to underestimate the support for it 
but if it's it's pretty out there, then they'll overestimate the support for it, and and marketers manipulate us by playing on this all the time. So this is another mechanism for for you know voters in a in a in an electorate to be able mm-hmm. to fee, get a feel for their electorate. Um, in the ACT, uh, there's a group of us uh, who are running these campaigns in the electorate of Fenner, and we've letterboxed about two and a half thousand. Um, Where does Fenner cover? So Fenner's basically Yarrabee, Currajong, mm-hmm. and a bit of northern. Um, Belconnen. Mm-hmm. So it's North yeah, Belconnen, so Gungalan. Yeah, the Hall. bottom half is Hall of Fenner, the top half is Yarrabee. Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, Fenner, Fenner's the federal electorate, so mm-hmm. it covers basically some of Currajong, mm-hmm. some of um, Yarrabee, and some of mm-hmm. the other one out there whose name escapes Gungarland? me. Gungalan. No, Bean. No, Bean. Well, Fenner's, mm-hmm. Fenner's North, Canberra's <laughs> Middle, and Bean's yeah. South. So. It basically runs along um, Belconnen Way, so mm-hmm. north of Belconnen Way. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, so you're organising. So we've yeah. and and we've also done a bit of handing out at shopping centres, and we're going to do a bit more handing out at shopping centres mm-hmm. next week, just to get people to fill in the survey. Or people can go to the ourdemocracy.org.au website and have a look at this find the link to the survey and fill it in themselves might be great for you to park yourself next to the political candidate at the farmer's market and see how that goes we (laughs) we we tried that and the farmer's market told us to go away because we were being political and we were thinking what's the difference between Between the candidates the candidates and us that's a bit odd yeah Yeah, that's a bit odd i mean maybe it's because we asked permission and maybe if we hadn't asked permission just parked ourselves there we would have had a different outcome and you're just people handing out flies they don't know who you're attached to that's (laughs) right so there's that um, and and we also found when we were sent, we were handing out them out at Gungalan Shopping Centre, the Zed Soldier Group came and and sort of did that to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually saw that in Tuggeranong during the um, lead up to the Legislative Assembly elections. There was one little Greens candidate, and it happened to be Jonathan Davis who got in, yep. and a whole bunch of Labor. And they were sort of all around him and intimidating him. And there he was by himself yep. doing his handing out of his flies. And so a few of us went up and made a point of gathering around him and giving him some attention and some audience yep. just to, you know, boost his confidence a bit. Yep, yep. So, yeah. But it was interesting to see the this, this strategies. But the other thing I'd heard too was last election was some people who were putting up core flutes quite late, um, you know, after dark, yep. whether that was because of that's the time they had available or they didn't want to be seen doing it. Uh, but then it, <laughs> yeah. it actually um, made them a target for people that weren't too happy about that. And they, people thought, okay, I don't like what they're doing. They're doing it in the dark. I can get away with harassing them. Hmm. And another group came and actually pulled up the core flutes. So. Yeah. <laughs> These were other core flute putter in us, weren't yes, they? Yes, yes, they were. <laughs> the core flute competition. Yeah. The core war. But speaking of core flutes, um, there was a lovely story that Tim Hollow, um, who's our – candidate with the Greens and he has well, been doing the Canberra a lot of, candidate yes, the Canberra candidate and he's been doing a lot of door knocking uh, and he had a, a gentleman he'd spoken to previously who was just so disenchanted with the whole voting system he said look I don't believe it works I don't believe we're ever going to get any change and Tim spoke to him again this time and the gentleman has actually now asked for a core flute of Tim and Gennaro to stick in his front lawn yeah. So there's been, you know, there's been a shift there and you know, yep. a bit of hope restored. Yeah, I mean a couple of people I've talked to have <laughs> have in the last week or so have been totally like, yep, I just don't vote anymore. And I think, you know, you can understand the emotional position that they find themselves in, Mm -hmm. 
But what that tends to be is they tend to have been progressive people who are now not voting for progressive candidates, which leaves the field open for um, people who are happy with the status quo to continue to be in power and controlling the status quo. And, and therefore I would um, challenge anybody who has that thought to actually think logically through to what this means in terms of the government we end up getting. Um, and, and, you know, there is some political science grey literature around the fact that one of the reasons why um, in the last couple of parliaments in Australia we have had such bad government is because the MPs are actually trying to trash the notion of government and to piss people off and get them to withdraw and not participate because that leaves the way open for them and that's how you slip into autocracy. Well, that, we've seen that in North America, right? Like that's yes. happened, um, you know, yep. quite a lot of success that campaign's brought them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I used to boycott the vote, but then I decided, well, really, that's a lovely ethical stance and mm. I still agree with it, but in practical reality, mm. these buggers are doing they want, all sorts they of... They want you to boycott the vote, that's Scotty. Right. Well, they're, they're creating the bads. So yeah. If, yeah. if we can't stop that somehow... and use any method available to us, then uh, we're not doing the right thing. Well, I mean, they wouldn't be as interested in various Mm. governments in corrupting the voting system if they weren't concerned that it might influence things against the way they'd like it to go. Correct. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't have, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats to Mm. some extent playing those weird games Mm. in the States with electoral boundaries Mm -hmm. um, if they didn't think it was, you know, for some reason important. So they, they obviously still believe that that's one aspect that we have power over them is, yeah. you know, that, that, that vote and how we cast that vote. That's right. Yeah. So it's the one, the one bit of power we don't want to give away. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, although there's a lot of myths about the power of voting, the fact is it is the one mm. power that voters have at election time mm. to choose the person they want to be in mm. the parliament representing them. Mm. And so it behoves us to use that power. Mm. And while the system is an ideal... The mechanism for making the system work better for us is to get the MPs in there who are going to do that work. Mm. And if we don't vote for them, mm. they don't get there. Mm. And the challenge, I think the challenge is if we do have great success at this election at voting some really, really good candidates in, will we then be at the mercy of them trying to change the system so that can't happen again? So, you've, you know, you mean like if, if, if the voting system is working for the the average person, yep. right, and we can make change and we can get rid of some of these nut jobs we've got in there, then will that be a danger to them wanting to change the system? Because it, there's always that desire to manipulate and retain control, right? Yep. So yep. as soon as something doesn't work in their favour, they, they yep. go about it another way. Yep. They come in another door, right? Well, that just means mm. that in every future election, we are going to have to continue to ensure mm. that we're getting... MPs in there who are not going to let that happen, who are going to vote in our interests to make sure that the people who are in power purely for the sake of being in power for their mates don't get to change the rules back again. I mean, we can see they're changing the rules already. I mean, this attempt to get voter registration photo ID up. I mean, that is just one more... Learning from the USA. Yeah, one way of putting more strictures around voting. Mm. You know, you leave your driver's licence at home mm. because you're just going down to have a sausage mm. and a vote. And you're not allowed to vote. And you're not allowed to vote. Yeah. Or you have to go home and get it and yeah. come back. 
Yeah. Having lived in a country where it was um, not uh, required to vote by law, we would only get about 60% voter turnout mm. at election. So yeah. you've got 40% of the people not having a say. That, that's a lot. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at of that 60%, mm-hmm. who was on which side, mm-hmm. um, it tends to be mm-hmm. people who like the status quo mm-hmm. who tend to come out and vote mm-hmm. because the status quo is already rigged in their favour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it could be used as a measure of disenchantment mm-hmm. too. Do you reckon that would be the case? Well, it is, and, and I think we can do that in our system by looking at the, at the informal vote. You know, so a proportion of informal votes are just going to be because people get confronted with a tablecloth and can't figure it out. Um, and some of it's because the, it's blank or got a flower um, doodled on it or, or some bad language. And so you can, you know, if, if the Electoral Commission wanted to, they could actually stratify that informal vote into, into mm-hmm. a protest versus a just informal vote. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> I can't remember if they did that in the last election or not. I can't remember those numbers. But that, in a way, is a measure of, yes, how people are thinking about the power of their vote. Yeah. Um, they've changed the Senate voting this time, so you've actually, you can't put one above the line and one below the line. You've got to put at least six above the line and 12 below the line. But again, depending on how big the tablecloth of your Senate ballot paper is, mm-hmm. I would encourage people to try and number all the votes under the line because mm-hmm. that's the best way of you putting your preferences where you want them to go. You're sort of getting two votes. You get one for the person you want first and you get one for the person you want last. Well, you've got to go above or below. You can't mm-hmm. do both. Yeah, but with the whole preference thing, it's yeah. you can put people last. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You can put people first and last and then you sort of... Spectrum. Spectrum in the, the middle. middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, political democracy and it's, it's the problems we're having with corruption and integrity and that sort of stuff, it, it stems from, I guess, big industries and lobbyists wanting to influence the, the political system. Now, when we did bring in parliaments and... and the semblance of democracy we do have in representation, we didn't go the whole way and, and get economic democracy. What role do you think actually having a democratic workplace as a as a large institution in society might make in the in the corruption thing? So so is is economic democracy the same as workplace democracy, I think is the first question. I imagine so, so, yeah. Okay, so, so let me let's challenge... Yes. <laughs> well, let, let me challenge that then. Yeah, yeah. Let's think about there's an issue around workplace democracy, about how you run a workplace and who gets to say in the policies and procedures of how that workplace is run. And I agree, there should be a lot of workplace democracy because, I mean, it fits in with a lot of other stuff we know about workplaces, that when people feel like they're up you know, they're sort of partially owning what happens, they work better and productivity goes up and they put that little extra bit in um, and, unless they feel they're being exploited. And the way to feel not exploited is to be part of the decision-making process about how the workplace works. And you go logically to the Mondragon, you know, models of, of, of democracy and that's total ownership by the workers. And so, um, and then you can have various cuts of that coming back. So that's that's workplace democracy in terms of economic democracy which i 
think about, um, I guess this is a Takis Fotopoulos way of thinking about it. So he's a Greek post-Marxist <laughs> philosopher. <laughs> philosopher. <laughs> it terms is who is making the decisions about how we run our economy? What do we spend our money on? How do we regulate corporations um, so that they're producing goods that the community needs and that the economy is is running so that people are getting their needs met rather than the economy is run to extract resources from the planet and trash them and money from consumers to make the rich richer. Mm. And so things like participatory budgeting. And so well there's there's yes, participatory budgeting is is one part of it. So that's about um I th- I think it was Julia Gillard talking to Frank Kelly um you know, a budget displays the priorities of the government. That's really true. And so yep. the more that people can be involved in deciding where we spend our money, that's democratic. And then there is um, the broader question about um, where the, the, the benefits of the economy get spent. Partially that's through the budget, but it's also broader around, you know, what... Th- the, the way broader decisions about, you know, society and what we value and how we're going to meet those values um, that to set up some priorities that lead into the budget process. Mm. Mm. So we're getting close to the end of our time here, Alas. Peter. I know, but we'll have you back. We'll have you back to worry because we've got, we've got to get through the budget before we get to the election. True. That's, that's going to be an interesting yep. little uh, folly there. Yep. Yeah. So is there anything you'd like to just share with our listeners before we wind up that, you know, just to leave them with a thought before they go to the polls. Well, I guess the closing thing is um, the, the Canberra Alliance website, election page, some questions you might want to use when you're interviewing your candidates to so see to how good they are. interview your candidates, big one. Interve- interview your candidates. They are working mm-hmm. for you. And um, in the Active Democracy Australia one, again, if you're in Canberra, we have three electorates. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a an Active Democracy ACT page which talks a little bit about the ACT. There's a small group forming in the electorate of Bean. Um, other experiments are happening in Fenner and Canberra. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of that, it's more watch this space. That'll mm-hmm. be an after-election mm-hmm. thing. Okay, fabulous. Well, thank you for joining us again, Peter. Thank you very and much we'll, for we'll having me. And we'll see you again in about six weeks. Yes. We'll see what sort of mess we've left ourselves in by yeah. then. <laughs> yep. okay. so no doc- worries. Yeah. Dr. Peter Tate with the Canberra Alliance on Participative Democracy and Active Democracy Australia. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. 
To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au that's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.